interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Kerry Edelman Show. Welcome to The Kerry Edelman Show. I am super excited today to have the uh, renowned mastering engineer, Mayar Applebaum coming on shortly. So um, I'm super excited. It's going to be a great interview with him today. We're going to take you on a really cool journey and talk about his life story and how he got involved in the uh, the music inter- music and entertainment industry, especially with regards to mastering. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so before I bring him on, uh, primarily a lot of my interviews have been with artists and musicians, and I really wanted to interview him to really get some, you know, insight on the background of the entertainment industry when it comes to producers and mix engineers and mastering. You know, we get this amazing music that we get to hear, but really the producers, mix engineers, and mastering engineers are, you know, who put the final touches on this music and uh, have a tremendous impact in what we get to hear today. So, He's going to join some of the really cool bands and national acts I've had on my show. Um, some of the bands I've interviewed have been 10 Years, Tremonti, Trivium, Sick Puppies, um, Starset, who I know is one of the bands that he's actually uh, mastered an album for, Dead, Lacey Sturm, and the list goes on. So please check out the podcasts and interviews. My show, I created it several years ago because I have a passion for entertainment. Um, my background's in psychology, so one of the things I really love to do is interview people. So I felt like, you know what, why don't I bring the two together and create a forum primarily for support. That's what my show is about. It's to bring these entertainers on so that they can promote their music or their product or whatever they have. We know that the industry over the years has changed so much, especially with the Internet. And, you know, unfortunately, I wanted to pull in today, I think, now more so than ever, is really an important time to be doing interviews um, just because of the whole COVID-19 situation. It's it's very challenging right now for entertainers and I think any medium that they can use to get their name out there and get their product out there is just so relevant and essential. So if you're tuning in, create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. Also, I always throw out a disclaimer. I know I mentioned I have a background in psychology, but my show is purely an entertainment show. We're not doing any diagnosis. We're not doing therapy. Um, There are times that we might talk about psychological concepts in an educational manner, but that will be the extent of um, that part. Okay. So let's do a nice introduction for Mar, and then we'll bring him on. He is a mastering engineer with over 20 years of experience. He's out of L.A., and prior to becoming this highly sought-after mastering engineer, he really has an extensive and interesting background in in the music industry. Um, He resided in his native Israel before he came to the U.S., where he worked as a music journalist, DJ, radio show host. He was um, a co-founder of two bands. I'm going to ask him a little bit about those later. And uh, when he came over to the U.S., he started working for the um, famed record producer, Sylvia Massey Shivy out of uh, Radio Star Studios. Eventually, he went off on his own and created his own mastering studio. He's had the pleasure of working with numerous artists, including Faith No More, Yes, Walter Trout, as I mentioned, Starset, and the list goes on and on. Um, And I think something that's really cool about him and a lot of the research I did on him is he has this this drive and this passion for what he does. I mean, it's it's really combining technical aspects and artistry, and, and it's not like a one-stop shop. I mean, he really hones in on the specific artist and what's going to be best for them and the product that they're putting out. 
So um, without further ado, let's bring him on. Hello. Hey, Mar. How are you? I'm doing good. I hope you guys there are staying safe and well and positive as much as possible. I know. I wanted to, yeah, before we got into the the crux of the interview, I wanted to ask you, yeah, how are you making out in the quarantine situation? Because you're out in L.A., correct? Yeah. Well, um, most of my work is either domestic, national, or, or international, so it comes from all over, and it doesn't have to be just located in L.A., um, right. But, you know, the situation affects everybody worldwide. But at the same time, I think that, you know, we we can make the best of what we have right now. And, mm-hmm. and if we keep uh, being creative and productive, then we can at least yield results that we couldn't if we wouldn't. You know, it's uh, I think it. It's important to utilize this time to do the stuff either we didn't do before or we are already doing and just continuing or, uh, you know, try to be uh, um, creative in, in finding what we can do to, to to get the most of it and keep our heads high. Not high like getting high, but, right. you know, <laughs> high exactly. above water, you know. Yeah, <laughs> in, I, I, think, I think that's a really... <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, I think that's a really relevant um, thing that you bring up. I mean, it is a challenging time. And as you heard me say, you know, when I introduced the show, you know, I didn't, I thought about it today as I was, you know, getting ready for the interview. I said, wow, I said, you know, my show's all, always been about support. That's the primary crux of my show. But what, a, you know, it's not more than a relevant time than right now. I mean, to help musicians and whether it's an author that can't do a book reading at a, you know, at a bookstore or a musician that can't go out and play at a venue, this is still a forum where people can come on, promote themselves, and hopefully, you know, make some sales. Um, And I think you made a really good point that it's also a time, like you said, I mean, you're fortunate that a lot of the stuff you're going to be doing in your studio, but even artists can be working on writing new material or, you know, doing their mixes to get that over to you. Um, So I think that's a really good point you made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you you know, um, I also think that this is a good time to think of what will be next. Like in terms of, yes. if you can write great songs now, when this is over, you can release those songs, or even now mm-hmm. release them and then tour later. Like it's really about um, putting the wheels into motion, because right now people are at home they can enjoy good music and when they when when this is over they can go out and see a show exactly yeah i think it's like you said i think it's being really strategic right now um and organized and structured with your time because you can make the most of it like you said if you look at the glass as being unfortunately in the best way possible half full versus half empty so to speak um so yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's that's a really really good point you make so let's do this i'm going to Take it back to um, when you were a little kid. I want to start from the beginning. I want to hear really about who you are, your life story, and, of course, we will eventually get up to speed with um, you becoming a mastering engineer and moving to L.A. But, you know, I saw that you were born and, and raised in Israel. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just yourself as a kid? How would you have described your personality? And I'm talking, you know, little, like five, six, seven. You know, were you a kid that was shy or were you someone who is very social and outgoing you know tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll start we'll start to build up to 
how you got involved in music, et cetera? I think best describing it was shy and outgoing. <laughs> uh, I, mean, <laughs> I think it always has to do with specific situations. Um, in general, I'm social. Like, but not mm-hmm. social as like I got to hang and got to – no, it's social in terms of I'm cool with people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't get agitated by being around people. I actually like people. Um, so as a kid, you know, I, we have friends in our neighborhood and school. And so, you know, and there are things that I was shy at probably, you know, looking back, you know, you can say, oh, maybe in this and that. I, I can't say specifically because I don't remember. But, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoyed my childhood. Um, uh, well, you know, we're aside. Go ahead, go ahead. You put aside the things you don't like, and you look at the stuff you did like. So, in general, you know, it was fun. Um, I liked music from a young age, but um, and as a kid, I learned a bit how to play, you know, a Casio keyboard, but uh, you know, or then an organ. But but um, I. That was my wasn't my thing, you know. I preferred watching cartoons, whatever, and and hanging with friends, whatever, you know, okay. than sitting but, and learning. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's let's as you say that stuff because that's really interesting. Can you recall like one of your favorite cartoons? What did you like to watch? Everything <laughs> I could watch to keep myself occupied and not go to school was probably relevant. Oh. You know, I don't even okay like because you know from a young age I just wanted to be myself and. You know, I didn't like going to school. I mean, this is like really like elementary school, okay? Like not trying to be rebellious. This was just who I was, you know. I mm-hmm. I just wanted to stay at home, watch TV, hang with friends. You know, I didn't I didn't really care much for uh studying at school at a really young age already. Um Okay. But I had a big love for music and I listened a lot to records. Like we had a for 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 that time we had a big record collection, you know, and I would pull out these Beatles records and uh, whatever we had there. I don't even remember uh, all okay. of them, but you, you know, it's it was my parents' records, and then late, you know, we had classical music, we had some, you know, old, old rock and some probably. Uh, you know, folk and whatever there was there. And, um, and then in time, I kind of got more into music and expanded that and uh, listened to what my brother was listening to and my sister. And and then, you know, you have your social circle of friends and they listen to something, then you got to listen to that and see if you dig sure. it or not. Sure, and, sure. Um, so while you're that's kind while of, you're talking about music, and I think that's important, tell me a little bit about your parents. Were they? Um, and and let's talk a little bit about your family. Why we're talking about this? Because you said you know it was their record collection. And were either of your parents involved in the music industry? What did what did they do for a living? My parents were never uh, involved in music. Well, okay. at least back then, uh, my father is. Uh, a professor, like a real professor, not just a claim word, but like a, you know, somebody who, you know, as a professor, a researcher, you know. Um, oh, wow. You know, okay. So he's a, he's a professor of uh, uh, electricity. 
Uh, oh, interesting. His okay. Main, his main thing is solar energy. Um, and he he's very into that. And um, my mother was a social worker. Okay. And, uh, and but they loved nice. music. It's just mm-hmm. they didn't get into it in terms of uh, um, working in it or, or you know, even... Um, even uh, collecting it, they weren't really into that much, like knowing all of it. But slowly, they did more and more. And then, like nowadays, they know a lot about like classical music, and and they go to opera, and they go to concerts, and even uh, you nice. know play a bit on an instrument. Not not professionally, but um, right. But just but kind of dabble then, a little know, bit. Yeah, yeah, for their fun, and 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 they, but they like music. Um, of course, they didn't want me to be a musician. You know, they, they well, wanted gonna, yeah, me to I have wanna, a normal life. <laughs> what did they? Um, we'll get to that too. But what did they want you to do? <laughs> like everybody, you know, be an engineer. Just, just have a regular job, home. or right, right. Yeah, but um, I mean, I can't blame them. You know what I mean? Like in Israel, musicians didn't make a big living. It's not like here, like the old days where musicians can make millions in Israel, Mm -hmm. you know, there were maybe three, four musicians that made a good pay. The others were floating, you know, small country. Uh, Plus there wasn't that much capital in it like here. Um, So, you know, but, 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 you know, that's part of childhood, teenagehood, you know, but they knew I liked music. They didn't, let me. They didn't tell me I had to play music, so mm-hmm. so I had my own band, you know, growing up. Yeah, they, yeah. Let's do really, a, really quick. Let's just yeah. take a little bit of a turn, just because I want to, and then we'll because we'll, I really want to push into mostly just talking about eventually the music. Um, you were talking about your mom and dad, and you also mentioned you had a brother who was into music and a sister. Um, do you just have one brother and one sister? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and what are, tell me a little bit about, you know, are either of them involved in any type of entertainment or what do they do for a living? Oh, they're, 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 they're music fans, like really, like they love music. Uh, my brother loves music big time and collects stuff. My sister loves music, but it's not as a collector, but they're both not involved in the industry. They're, uh, you know, they have other occupations, you know, that are far remote. Uh, they have their okay. hobbies, like my brother's a marathon runner. And, oh, wow. And, you know, he likes, you know, ex- not extreme sports, but, you know, everything that's involved running. And, uh, but, but, and my sister also now in that, but, but they, they all have, you know, their parents, they have kids just like me, they have older kids. Um, but okay. uh, they appreciate music so much, and like for them, I'm like I'm the buffer to the music. Sometimes. Right, absolutely, yeah. Um, and speaking real quick of sports, where you're saying that your brother's a marathon runner, did you do any sports? You know, either as a little kid or when you were in middle or or um, what's it called, high school? Were you ever involved in sports? The only sports I did was walking to a rehearsal and back. Okay. But I was carrying a bass guitar, and Uh sometimes I even carried a boombox, which was my amplifier, because I didn't have a bass amp, but I kind of uh, improvised one. So that was my sports. Um, I was never considered 
uh, a sporty guy, you know. Um, okay. I do like walks. I do like long walks, but I was never like, you know, doing, um, you know, actual sports, you know, games or something like that. And gotcha. I don't know why, you know. Okay. I mean, it was sounds like, why. as we'll see, it sounds like music was really, you know, your main focus and your, your passion. Um, so as a little kid in school, were you just, did you ever get interested in school or was school just kind of, you did it, but it was not really your thing? School is more a social thing for me. It's like mm-hmm. I would come there to see my friends, hang, um, teacher, get thrown out of class, <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. see my other friends outside. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think that a lot of times people forget that school is maybe more social than educational because a lot of the things we learn some mm-hmm. of, some are very important, but some of the things we learn they're important if we want to go that route. But if we don't want to go that route, then we're learning information that we could exchange with other information that probably could make more of use. But that's Definitely. a different topic, I guess. Right, right. No, I agree with you. It's not you know school isn't for everyone. Um, so, like you said, you're listening to a lot of music. You're really getting interested in a young age. Tell us a little bit about, because I know your background is extremely eclectic, and when we start to get into talking a little bit about the bands um, Sleepless and Vultures that you co-founded, um, which I did some you know, reading on on what I could find on them, I definitely saw that you're very versatile in terms of being able to sing and write and play various interest, instruments. What did you first start out with? So were you someone who started singing, or were you singing and playing guitar? Tell us a little bit about you know, your first performance aspects when you started to get involved in music? Well, uh, I'm not a multi-instrumentalist or anything like that. I'm originally a bass player uh, in a way. I'll say in a way because I I played bass good enough to fill in the shoes I needed in my bands. But that doesn't mean I'm qualified to play in every band and or 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 be a session player. Um, okay. So bass was my instrument, and th- during during my teenagehood, I had different bands that that were like performing gigs, and barely we did recordings. But once in a while, we did. You know, back then recordings were super expensive, but we we performed at a lot of clubs, and that was through high school to even during the army and after the army. Probably during the army was only rehearsals; we didn't do shows. But after that. And I played with different bands. Um, and then Sleepless was the first project, which was, it was never like a live band. It was just a project, which right. yielded an album. But that was the first time I was not only playing bass, but actually singing. And okay. in every band that I was part of before, I would always be part of writing the music and arranging, whatever you want to call it, composing, arranging, or let's just say making the riffs involved with mm-hmm. it. But um, And in some of them I wrote lyrics as well. But in Sleepless was the first time I was also singing. Um, and, and in addition to being involved in the writing and composing and the arranging and the, and the lyric writing. Involved right. Involved which was another band, which was a, a live band that we did a lot of shows in Israel. Um, that band was an actual, 
you know, we were all in it and we all contributed. And I didn't write any lyrics there, but I did uh, write, I was part of writing the music and arranging it. And um, with most of my bands, I produced the stuff. And okay. with Vultures, okay. I produced, I I produced and engineered and mixed it, um, which today I would probably prefer not to take all those hats on me, uh, not wearing right. them, maybe better. But um, because it, it takes a lot for me. It was a good learning experience, but, um, um, you know, working with a band is not that easy. And I was part of that band. And, uh, and I think we were really good, but we were very extreme and unpolished, which was what we were maybe getting the great responses from. People, yeah, tell us but, really, um, really quick, because while you're talking about that, because I know you were signed to one of the records, you were on Fact Records with another one was MOMT, that was your Discoveries and Plasma Ticks album. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, what was the genre of music like? I know that I read something that described it as sludgecore mayhem and industrial noise. I mean, was this like kind of like a Nine Inch Nails with... You know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not sure. I didn't. You know. I apologize. I didn't actually hear any of it. But you tell us a little bit about how long you guys were together and the genre and that type of thing. I think by the speed that we moved, we were more like a nine-inch snail. Okay. But uh, <laughs> but uh, no. The, the thing is that back then I was doing a lot of other projects and I had other bands. Um, I had a band that was called IWR. And we were signed to a German label and okay. uh, we released two records. And so I was doing a few projects at the same time. Sleepless was from 96 to 2001 and Vulture, 2000, no, 2001 or two. And Vultures, mm-hmm. yeah, I think 2002 maybe. And Vultures was active already from maybe 99, end of 99. Um, and then IWR was also kind of starting during that time and then I had my solo projects that were like experimental music and dark music Um, if you go to SoundCloud and you just type my name there's a whole bunch of avant-garde dark ambient experimental soundscapes a lot of weird music that I composed back then that's you know it still sounds relevant to today but that's what a lot of the stuff I was doing back then um, okay cool Vultures was kind of an amalgam, amalgam, sorry, amalgam, mm-hmm. um, of yes. we were very influenced by industrial music, different eras of industrial music, like from 80s to 90s and beginning 2000 with metal music. And then came in some experimental music and even some of the stoner stuff. It's not like, it's not like you hear it and you hear all the influences, but but right. people would compare us to, like you said, Nine Inch Nails meets Trapping Young Lad meets, um, I don't know, maybe Godflesh, maybe um, not Marilyn Manson, but, you know, something okay. in that right. type of when you have rock and industrial. But we were never a polished outfit, so it was always very raw. And that's how our shows were. And okay. And the thing is, we could we brought a lot of people to a show. The clubs were super happy with us because you know they made a good, you know, good time, uh, 
good Penny. money selling tickets. Right. <laughs> and also our crowd was a drinking crowd. Okay. So they made good money on the bar. Right. So, right. So uh, we, cool. released, we released a self-released EP called Vultures. And mm-hmm. then we had like small releases on like, like a, a many, many, many CD R, and then we had another thing here and there, and then MOMT released some uh, an, uh, an album for us, uh, which had remixes, and then we actually had a contract with a major label, and we refused it. Um, Interesting. How come? Because back then we figured that you know it was it was an offshoot of a major label, and okay. they were trying to bring indies up, but you know, we had the feeling that will be something that will be talked one day and bye-bye, baby, bye-bye. You know, like they, right. it, it didn't no, feel I know like you're going to get something. Um, right. So I called, I called a friend and I said, Hey, I have a record for you. Do you want to release it? You know? And he's like, yeah. And so we, we released one of our records and then we had again, another contract for a double album, <laughs> but we split up. Oh no! We, How come? What, what led band, to the what led to the split up of that band? I think what happened is that as you technically mature as a musician and you mm-hmm. ingest things, you you start gravitating to different areas, and then each person in a band is like a world of its own, and it doesn't sure. become a solar system. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't, they don't um, orbit around each other, you know, it it starts to be like, like two galaxies, not even, you know, they don't think in one, uh, there's no one sun and everybody going around it. And we start growing apart and then um, Mm -hmm. um, you get tired. You're like, "Ah," you know, we, we, what really I think ruined it for us is that the band, we were live band, and then they wanted to, I say they, but let's say us, okay? But we wanted to become more lively, so we added drums, and then may you know, sometimes bass. And the thing is that our music was not written with drums. We had mm-hmm. samplers. And right. when we added the drums, it just sounded like somebody's just playing drums with our music. And it's like, uh, I don't get it. It doesn't really sound that cool. So the energy became organic, but the music is not. And the music, the organics of the music is the mechanical side of it. And when you try to humanize it, it just sounds like a hybrid that didn't sound right. right. And I I remember we had arguments and like, you know, these, if if we would write it from the get-go this way, we could make it work. But no, you can't just now put drums and replace the parts, or it just didn't work. And well, that also. And I think. Go ahead. Sorry. And and the last show we did was with a drummer and a bass player, and after that we split. Right. Oh gosh. I'm not. Sure. I don't but remember if the bass like, player was there. But it sounds like again, like you said, you you were moving in different directions, and it sounds like you in the various bands that you were in were able to get a tremendous amount of experience in so many different areas of music, which I'm sure you're going to start to talk about, you know, you're eventually combining that stuff to get to where you are today. Um, But before we get into that, I wanted to ask um, a couple of quick things. 
You also were involved in, in DJing, working as a music journalist. You had a radio show. Tell us just a little bit about each of those terms of time frame-wise. Were you doing all that stuff at the same time you're, you're in these various projects and bands? You know, just, just fill us in with that because I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I'm not sure how much people know about that with you, that, you know, your background's really diverse. It, it's not just pure music, so to speak. It's, it's various aspects of music. Um, I think that's also what helped me uh, be, become what I am for what I'm doing now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that perspective of, for today. But um, going back to the question, yeah, I was, a, I was a DJ for a long time. I was a DJ at clubs and I would, uh, mostly I would do metal music. And sometimes it was, metal crossover of course and, and all those subgenres of it but um I would be like there was a club called uh Azimuth and I would be the DJ from five to six AM. Uh, I know it's okay. crazy in America to say that, but yeah in Israel yeah, the no. party starts at well, it the party starts <laughs> at twelve thirty or one AM and you okay. go home at nine maybe or, or eight. But anyway, um <laughs> I was at that club every weekend I was I would arrive to the club at like 3 a.m., hang with the friends, and then 4, get ready, and then, you know, 5, I start like maybe even earlier than 5, but I would start DJing, you know, give them an hour, hour or something. And then every month we had like a whole evening that I would DJ. And then sometimes I would DJ at the bar upstairs, and uh, then I would DJ in different clubs, you know, the whole night for for metal Mm -hmm. nights and, uh, you know, like... And uh, then I had a a line like a, um, we were we uh, that was way later on. But anyway, throughout all these years, I was DJing in different clubs. Um, and then there was one club that was kind of a BDSM club. Um, okay. That that had a really nice uh, build inside. It looked like a dungeon. And, okay. <laughs> and we had this evening called uh, Masters of Metal, and it was a weekly thing. And we were uh, two or three DJs. Uh, running it, and it was fun for for the time that it was. Um, but um, at during that time and, and prior, probably I was also a music journalist. I I wrote reviews and I did some interviews uh, for magazines. Um, I started in a in a music magazine called Dofek, which means Pulse in Hebrew. There okay. I was mostly reviewing records, and then later on there was a Metal Hammer a magazine version in Hebrew called Metal Hammer, you know, in Israel. Um, It's a license of Metal Hammer that was in Hebrew, uh, but it didn't have the same articles. It just had what they brought in. And I was doing reviews and interviews there. And I also had a webzine back when it was very rare. It was called alternative-zine.com. I think the website website still exists with the old articles (laughs) and interviews. Cool. And um, same there, we would put news, we would put uh, interviews that we did and reviews and also photos from festivals. And uh, during that time, um, the later time, I I had a radio show, an internet radio show. This is really early on, like yeah. I'm talking 2004. Okay. I think two. Um, 2004 or 2003 
some somewhere in that area, 2003, four, um, had a radio show called Whiplash. Even though today there is a radio show called Whiplash, but that was then, and it was an in, um, Israeli um, internet radio station called WFM, C O I L. I don't know how long that radio station exists after that, but it was me and two other guys and uh and a girl and she she would run the like administrative side uh we had a chat room and you know run that and then there was an, uh, me and another guy and we would just you know uh do a live broadcast um and we would play songs and talk and and we would bring guests too so cool uh, I wow! That. Again, and then also very, like I, I would, said, interesting. Go ahead. And I also would come as a guest DJ on other normal radio shows that existed. Okay. So okay. Now, it was, Mellor, it was as you're as you're doing all these different things, is this how you're, you know, basically making a living? I mean, are you getting paid to write these? music articles, the journalist stuff you're doing, working as a DJ, or were you working any other types of, you know, basic jobs at all? Or was this what you were doing to make money? I had a day job. I was, uh, okay. I was, uh, well, I, I worked in a studio um, for a while, but then that was not a big enough for pay. Not that I was looking for big money. It was just so little money. I, I had to sleep in the studio on a couch. Oh, and, uh, okay. and I would and I would make the money based on the rehearsals coming in, and if they didn't come in, if they canceled, I didn't make money. So I was just sitting okay. there. But but that money was under minimum wage. I barely could buy something to eat with that money. <laughs> so, oh gosh. Um, okay. So after a while, I was like, you know what? I like this, but um, you know, I I need to make a bit more of a living. So I moved to a different rehearsal studio that that I worked with there only on the weekends, and I took a day job during the week as a broadcasting engineer, which I never did before. So I wasn't even qualified for the job. But um, How'd you get it? I, well, I this is a really funny story. I collected <laughs> some newspaper clips of job offers, and this was old. This, this was just like I put it in like a notebook. But this is okay. like an old newspaper ad. And I looked at it, and I called the guy, and he's like, how did you know we're looking for some for, for, a, for a broadcasting engineer? I'm like, I don't know. I have this ad here. But, but it's an old ad. Yeah, I tried my luck. Well, <laughs> maybe it's possible. You know, he, he, he was in shock. Somebody's calling about an ad that was not even placed this year. This was placed, right, right. <laughs> I think, almost two years ago or something. So awesome. he said, okay, well, come, come by. And I told him, you know, to, to get qualified to that job, you had to have an associate degree in communications and um, uh, communications and forget what it was maybe a degree in communications or an associate something that I didn't have anyway <laughs> right um, so so he said well let's test you he saw that I know about audio and I have a small knowledge about video but he saw that I I don't have a lot of the knowledge that is needed so he said he told me let's do this why don't you work here a month and learn and if you pick it up 
and you can run a broadcast, you'll get the job. Nice. So I'm like, you know, the first thing is like, am I getting paid for this time? You know, just, I ask, you know, right. but it, it was a big place. So they don't have a problem doing that. So they're oh, like, yeah, you'll get great. paid for this month. And if it works, you, you stay. If not, you know. So I really worked hard, really, really. And, you know, then I had my trial by fire, you know, like sink or swim, whatever you want to call it. Right, right. And I did my first broadcast and it turned out good, you know. And it was, um, it was a distance learning program for Open University. And which means you operate video and audio and there's um, educational platforms. It's, you have to learn all of it to make it work. And I did okay. it. And um, That's awesome. after a month, I got hired. Later on, I became head engineer of that program um, because the other senior guy became just the boss. So he wouldn't broadcast anymore. And the other okay. guy that was there before me would take half shift, you know, half, like only part-time, you know, shifts. We were like two broadcasting studios together. So I did that for a year, and that gave me some money. Plus, in the weekends, I would work in a rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. And that way I could afford, you know, buying some stuff. And, you know, that's when I did Sleepless and I also did vultures then. Yeah. So, and then Mm -hmm. after a year, I got offered to design a studio for the medical, the school of medical science for university of Tel Aviv, which funny enough, it's across the street. (laughs) Really? And you know, what's interesting and I don't, I'm not very, really quick. I'm not very close, but I have some family in Israel and, and one of my, I think it's my dad's cousins. He lives in Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv, Aviv, you know, is the big city. And in Tel Aviv, Mm -hmm. you know, there are suburbs. And the university is in a place called Ramat Aviv. And the open university was in Ramat Aviv. Now it's in Ranana. But it was exactly walking distance to the School of Medical Science. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Going out, crossing the street, and I'm there. And... Mm -hmm. um, so they offered me a job as a consultant, and I um, I helped them design and work uh, a concept, you know, to to build a broadcasting studio for uh, medical uses for medical uh, continuing medical education. That's after you finish um, uh, school, you go to a hospital, and then on your breaks you learn something new, you know, the continuing medical right. education. Right. Yeah. And um, so. I helped them design that. And after a while, they said, look, we don't have any more budget. Hire you more for consulting, which was kind of a bummer, right? Because I made Mm -hmm. good money on that. But then they said, well, we can offer you a job. And it was half of the work time that I need to spend as what I had in the open university. I was like, wow, I only work three days a week? Wow. (laughs) I have time to do other stuff. Yeah, so what was that job that they offered you? So they said, why don't you technically manage the studio and be the broadcasting engineer as well? Because it's a smaller operation. So Mm -hmm. I said, okay, uh, what do we do now when it's still in build? They said, well, 
you can't work, but what you can do is you can come here and keep consulting, you know, and keep um, overseeing the project, and you'll just get a uh, salary. Okay. So I think it was a month or two getting a salary, coming, saying hi, bye, what's up, hey, you know, checking out. No, I mean, doing work. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't doing nothing. but um, And then moved there. I did that for seven years. And because oh, wow. I was uh, – because I was mostly working three days a week, sometimes I had to do more because sometimes we made changes in the studio or other programs. But because I had the time, I filled my schedule up with also teaching in a high school. I taught audio engineering. I did that. And you know, it's real, real quick, just to digress for one second. I mean, it's so interesting just what you're saying in terms of, and again, you never went to school for all this stuff, right? I mean, you just literally learned. I forgot. forgot Oh, you did. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah. Where did you do that at? There, there was a program, there was a school called, uh, it still exists, called uh, Sound. That's the name of it, Sound. Okay. And it's, uh, it's like the, the most, the oldest school in Israel for sound engineering. And there was a program that you could apply to, which was kind of free, but then you kind of have to work in hotels or different places, you know, doing audio like work, like, you know, installing okay. stuff or, and it was to give people a profession, um, wow. you know, so they'll, so, you know, it's like unemployment, you know what I mean? So the unemployment office could offer you courses in computers and, and different stuff, but you had to qualify for it. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and so I saw that there's an opening for it and I went and I went there. And um, and I got I got in, and uh, so I did that course technically for free. And then it wasn't the normal sound engineering course. We didn't focus on recording actually. We actually focused on live um, and installations. Okay. So we learned a lot of stuff that, like, you know, installing stuff. So, uh, we learned stuff that we, in the end, I didn't even use. But. I, I probably learned more than I remembered after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I did learn that, but I wasn't learning recording really. Um, okay. So moving fast forward, you know, the knowledge I had was what I learned in my own experience. And then of course, working in a rehearsal studio, which was also a recording studio, but I did less of that. And then by myself recording my own bands and then in broadcasting, right. I learned from the job itself. And, um, and then later on, I also released my own music, and and I I had a licensing company that me and another person that had a record label and a distribution company shared um, licensing of four records of we did uh, one record one album of the band Nightwish we licensed that record oh, wow. called okay. One I've heard to of the them. Israeli Market. Mm-hmm. We did two records for the band Death. Uh, individual thought patterns and human we did for the Israeli market and a German band called Ed Guy. I forgot the name of the album. Um, Mysterious. I forgot the name, but anyway, we licensed it to Israeli market. And then I released a record for other bands and I had a kind of a distribution of my own where I was uh, trading some of my own solo project records and trading them with other records of other experimental musicians and labels 
and mail order record labels, and I would bring them to a shop and sell them to a shop in Tel Aviv. Okay. So I was already selling records of other people and selling mine. And, <laughs> right. Oh, my you know. gosh. No, that's, I mean, talk about having, you know, every pretty much aspect of the industry slowly getting under your belt, so to speak, um, to really prepare you for, you know, what you're eventually going to be doing um, down the road. If you look at the big picture, yeah, because all of these things helped me understand, you know, looking from the consumer side to the professional side and mm-hmm. vice versa. And uh, yeah. so if I... You know, if I have an idea, I can look at it in in different ways of, you know, approaching it. Although I'm not savvy with what's today, how the industry really works. You know, for me now, it's a a moving target. But but back then, that's how we became creative in our way of pushing our band is we found ways to sell our CDs, our merch, getting our music placed on the radio, getting, getting known, you know, flyers, walking the street, giving flyers or, or sticking flyers on, on billboards. Or, I don't know if it's called billboards. I think it's called kiosks or whatever, but, right. you know, doing the, ru- doing the runs, we would call it, you know, going to the record la- the shops and, and putting, uh, ha- handing invitations to shows, flyers, you know, yeah. all that. No, that's, um, that's, that's crazy. So putting everything together, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. So you're working, like you said, you did about seven years at that medical school, right? And then you're also doing, seven like years. you said, some, seven years, right? Yeah. So after yeah. that, when, when do you eventually come to the U.S.? Let's t- tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you get in touch with, or is Sylvia Massey um, the first person you meet? Is that what brings you to the U.S.? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's where things really get funny. Uh, during my seventh year at that broadcasting studio, I felt that in the summer, besides maintenance work that I need to do in the studio, I have a lot of free time, which, of course, I got paid for. But right. <laughs> I, could, I could use that time for something else. And I was looking for places I can maybe intern or or just hang, and of course I didn't know what I, what I was looking for really because I didn't know what that thing is considered, you know, mm-hmm. what is internship, what is all that, but I lived in Israel. And back then we didn't have Facebook. The only thing we did have was MySpace. Yes, and, I remember you know, MySpace. People, and, and also people were communicating by emails. Um, mm-hmm. So I was working with... Uh, I was working with some bands in Israel. Like I was doing mastering already then all those years for really local small bands that just didn't sound good. I didn't make them sound good at all too, but I made it sound better than what they were. Okay. (laughs) I can't make something, you know, I can't polish a turd. I can make it smell better. Okay. (laughs) Um, So so I, I was that guy that would take those really bad sounding mixes by really not great sounding bands and make them more tolerable, maybe. But (laughs) that showed me that I have that interest more and more to it. I was actually gravitating more to that. But I couldn't couldn't figure out what, there was some kind of dissonance in my mind, like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not progressing? 
And I got to a conclusion that back then that the metal bands, for example, in Israel, some of them were good, some of them were not good. But the engineers that were really, really good, they didn't know how to deal with really bad bands. And they're okay. really good engineers, but the bands were really not good at all. And some of them were really <laughs> bad. But the, those bands would send out stuff to small studios in Europe or America, really good results, because those engineers will really work hard to cut, paste, to arrange. I don't know what they did. They did magic to them. And they weren't great engineers, but they knew the genre really well. So they knew right. what to do with them, you know? Yeah. And bands from Israel couldn't get those. Now they can, but back then they couldn't get those results there. So it wouldn't matter if you're a good engineer or a bad engineer. The results were not there. And of course, the engineers would blame the bands, which was right. But the smaller studios, small, mid, low, even not high, could get what they wanted. So I was trying to get that. So I did my best, but I figured I probably need to go out to learn something. Uh And there was a band that it was good friends of mine, and they worked with Sylvia Massey. They're called Seek Irony. By the way, they still exist. They changed members and all that. And now they live in America, by the way, in Texas. Um, Okay. And um, they have a house there with a studio, and they produce bands. They're called Evil Snail Studios. Um, Cool guys. I worked with them a lot. Um, anyway, that band to the U.S. and worked with Sylvia Massey. And when mm-hmm. they came back, I asked them, would you mind if I mastered those tracks? I wanted to work on something, you know, sounds legit. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. did. And it turned out really good. And um, And then... You know, it came out, people dig it. It was just a few songs. And then I worked with them on another song. And when we were sitting and talking, they told me about their experience and all that and how was it to live and work there, you know, with Sylvia back then. That was at the same studio that I, I later on went to, but it was, they had different gear, less gear then. It was a few less rooms. And I got so excited. I was like, you know what? I should talk to her. Mm-hmm. So I called. And what, real quick, what year is this around? Where are we at time-wise, just so I can see where we're at? 2000 and, uh, 2000 and end of 2006, beginning okay. Okay. 2007. Okay, so they just give so, you her number? You said, hey, I want to call her, and they just, they give you num- her the number? You heard her number? No, no, they showed me the website. The website had like, okay. all these pictures. That's That's already like maybe a year or half a year, between half a year to a year later. Okay. Um, and then the website already was up and all that. And and uh, so I called Sylvia and I said, hi, my name is Maor. I just worked with Seek Irony. And um, I don't know if she heard it or not, whatever, you know, we started talking. And uh, and then um, I said, you know, I'm, I'm available in the summer. I would love to come, you know, work or, you know, be there. We didn't use the term mm-hmm. fly on the wall then, but, you know, kind of yeah, like that. Sure. That's maybe what I was mm-hmm. thinking. Um, but um, she was like, yeah, why don't you bring your gear with you? Like, oh. That's so cool. Okay. Right. And and then then it, there was kind of a back and forth. Um, 
to see what's happening. And then a few months before, maybe it was two months before, somehow I was walking up the hallway of where I worked and I saw the janitor, the main janitor. And he's like, hey, I heard they're closing the project. I was like, what? Like, oh, yeah, I heard they're closing the... It's like, it's serious. He's like, yeah. I'm like, so I go to my boss and it's like, I heard the project is going to be closed. She's like, no, why do you think like that? I'm like, well, that's what I heard. And I was like, and I didn't like the answer because she was like, no. And I was like, uh, I'm not sure, you know. Uh, right. I went up the ladder. I went to a different boss that was not my boss, but was a boss of something else. That, And she said, yes. I was like, okay, oh. I got to plan ahead now. Mm-hmm. So then after a few weeks, I get a call up to my boss's, you know, room, uh, office. And she says to me, yeah, you know, the project has been for seven years. You know, it's a lot of investment and, uh, we're closing it, you know, because uh, that project comes in from, um, it doesn't get money from the university. It gets money on its own. And then it has to spread it to the university. Different oh, wow. kind of economics there. It's it, it has its own thing. It's a very unique situation for the good and bad. And um, okay. that's why I had to close. And um, so I'm like, you know what? This thing that I'm going to be going for the summer I guess it's not just going to be the summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. So, I just want to, really quick, I just want to point out, and, and this is, I hope you take this as a compliment, I think, and I'd love to hear this, and, and this theme is coming through as you talk throughout the interview, is just, you know, this, this concept of determination and perseverance and grit, and you clearly have that, Mayar, and I think that's just so cool to hear, and that's that's one of the things I really try to hone in on when I do interviews is, to hear about that passion, that determination, and what you need to do to get to that next level, which is what you're going to say now is, I'm assuming you're going to say there was really no looking back. Like, you had to make this work, correct? To sum it up, yes. Um, my father, he's a Holocaust survivor, you know, oh, as wow. a kid. You know, but, but he they, 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 ran, they escaped, and they ran, and they hid, and, you know. But so he wasn't in a ghetto or in a... A concentration camp but he was in refugee camps and he was in different types of camps you know and he was smuggled to different places he he lived that type of life um, wow. I think in the genes it probably moved to me but um, mm-hmm. I can't say no looking back it was sad you know it was really sad but but I figured you know what this is the time and opportunity. I remember my friends telling me, oh, you'll be three months and you'll come back. (laughs) You know, it's like, uh, and their friends, you know, they were just thinking in reality and even though Mm -hmm. my reality was different, but, but yeah, I figured, you know, if that's the situation, let's, let's eat the whole cake and try to digest it as is, you know, and, and just, you know, live with it and not be, it, it, I was worried. I was afraid, you know, because I yeah, didn't know. Yeah, I mean, you're leaving. Where how I'm did your live. family? How did your family feel about you leaving Israel to go to L.A.? Well, it wasn't L.A. It was a place called Weed in California, oh, Northern sorry, sorry, California. Sorry, that's right. You live in L.A. That's right. She was right. Her studio was in Weed, California, right? Yeah. Well, um, 
you know, they saw this as um, an adventure. They Mm -hmm. were worried, of course, but they also believed in me because they saw, you know, how tenacious I was, you know, with keeping a job Mm -hmm. and, and, and getting, you know, getting something that, you know, occupies me on, on different levels and, and I can get a paycheck back at home, you know, something from it. Um, Mm -hmm. They were worried, but I got to say they were supportive of it. And I think it was because I'm already, I was into my, I was turning 32. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So they were supportive in a way that, you know, they, they had talks with me about it. I had a lot of talks with people. I didn't just go, you know, balls to the wall. In a way, it is right. balls to the wall, but I was, I but was you consulting still with friends. Thoughtful about it. You thought about it. It wasn't yeah. just like you said a rash decision that you made, right? Yeah, it was like calculated chaos. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I, I took like something that you don't know where it's going to, but I was also calculated with the moves in that realm, and. And my parents and the people who I knew that I talked with about it, they gave me perspectives. And that's what I always like. I like hearing perspectives. I, I'll choose mm-hmm. what I want, but I like hearing things. And, um, it, you know, it, it injected a lot of things like fear, panic. Sure. And okay. the fear made me work the angles out. I didn't get, I didn't panic, but I got to places where I was unsure of it. I'm leaving a country I lived for so many years. And, and I was, you know, if I was leaving that project, by the way, it's not like I would be without work. I would find work there. You know, I wouldn't be on the street, you know, um, homeless or whatever. But I, I made a huge decision to leave at the age of 32, which is very unheard of nowadays that you you start a new life at that age, especially in a music-related industry. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. No, I mean, congratulations. That's just – and like you said, it's not that you can't do it. It's just it's not the norm. Right. You know what I mean? With this type of industry, but cool. Keep going on. Yeah. So so I, um, I started, you know, um, making some calls to people I know kind of ask them about the mentality. Of course, you can't really know the mentality until you live live, live in it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I knew some people that knew other people, so they talked with me and they gave me some uh, in, insights. And then, you know, on, on getting an artist visa and, you know, I went to various people that either new things about communication or new things about approaching a target. I don't want to call them coaches because that will be undervaluing them, but I would Mm -hmm. like to say people who have knowledge or um, um, uh, perspectives or, or um, approaches. And, um, and it really helped me hone on this. And um, I remember there was a point where I didn't know what's happening because I didn't know where I'm going to live, you know, when I mm-hmm. came to that studio. 
and um, and then I came to New York for a few days because uh, my father was going to a convention, so we all came there to New York for okay. I think it was seven or ten days, and then we went to the convention, and then from that convention, I took a flight, and then another flight, and another flight, and I remember landing in the airport in Medford. Medford, uh, what's uh, what's the uh, Medford, Oregon? Oh, okay, okay. And I needed to take a cab to Weed, and it's very far from Weed, you know. And I, and I, there was no bus. I, I didn't know how to get to Weed from there. And then I stopped right, this right. guy who was kind of like taxi, and I said to him, "I need to get to Weed. How do I get?" Not, he didn't think I was asking for weed. I he knew of the town. But, but I was like, I need to get to weed. Can I pay you to get there? And he looked at me like, you're crazy. It's far from here. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, what's far? It's, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if it's an hour and a half or two, whatever. But I couldn't find, I couldn't rent a car then or whatever. Right. So he said to me, he said, look. I got some packages I need to deliver. If you come with me, I had a hundred dollars in my pocket or something uh, or less. It was a hundred dollars for either everything. I I don't remember exactly, but he said, if you stay with me the whole uh, drive to put the packages, I'll put you in weed in that place. Okay. So I drove him. He went to deliver all these packages, and then he dropped me in front of the studio office. And I'm like, with all wow. these, you know, suitcases and backpacks. I was like, okay, right. this is weed. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, such cool stories. I mean, cool stories in the sense that it just took a lot for you to get where you are. But thank you for sharing them. Go on. And, you know, and then I, you know, I think I met Sylvia that day or the day, something like that. And then I was living in this house that they had for a few days. And then, I mean, there's a lot of stories there that are funny. Yeah. Yeah. So let's yeah talk uh-huh. a little bit about, so now you're, you're in weed, you're, you're ready to go. And this is going to be your, your new pivot, as we say, or transition um, to where your life is going to end up. Um, so just yeah, share us why you do this. Share a little bit about how long did you work with Sylvia for, and when you were working with her. Was that when you were getting you know some of these opportunities, which we know your disc- discography is massive. And I was going to say to you, we'll talk a little bit about that, but maybe down the road we'll bring you back on for another interview and really delve into just the albums you've done and that and stories behind that, because I think that would be a really cool uh, niche to do. But just share with us a little bit about your experience with Sylvia, what you learned from her, how long did you work with her, what were some of the artists you worked on with her? I worked for her from July 2007 till, I think, March 2008. Okay. I think it's eight months, maybe. Okay. Um, I worked every day, all day and weekends as well. And I lived mm-hmm. in the studio. I moved around between different places in the studio where I could have a mattress 
<laughs> uh, okay. And um, and it wasn't it wasn't a paid job. It was basically it wasn't like internship in the way that I was doing what the runners were doing. I did some of right. that. You know, I did exchange toilet paper. I did clean up trash cans and stuff like that. But I was mm-hmm. also doing more actual work. Mm-hmm. She saw that I'm good with hardware, you know, with equipment, uh, gear, mixers, you know, all that. So, um, and for me, this was like what you call gear porn. You know, you walk into the studio, yeah. you see all these lights, knobs, and buttons. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. I never saw this before. <laughs> like, right. dude, you're living the dream. <laughs> Every day, I was so energized. Like, I couldn't fall asleep. Like I'm not joking. I would I would be awake. I'm like I gotta take pictures of myself to see it's real. It's not a selfie era back then, but I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Like, it was so surreal for me to sit on a knee, you know, console like this vintage console that tons of records I knew were recorded on, and it was amazing. Um, and then um, funny opportunities happen because it's like you don't think something would happen and you wish for it and it happened like in a, in a, in a weird way. Like for example, there was a, a, a record that Sylvia was producing and most of it was produced, recorded and mixed in that studio. But there were two songs that were recorded in a, a different studio, but were mixed mm-hmm. at Sylvia's place. And one of the engineers that was doing the, the tape transfers um, uh, for those two songs, he got sick he didn't feel good. So, you know, so um, he had to go home. Uh, and then Sylvia looks at me and says, well, you mix now. I was like, wow. Oh, okay. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is, I never, I don't know the automation here. I don't know this and that, but so I worked it somehow. And then I call her and she comes in and she's like, she's good. And then she did a few tweaks. Nice. There. Of course, I don't even know the gear as well. She doesn't, she made the tweaks then she did some automation, and then she taught me the automation. She's like, good, mm-hmm. print the mix. I print the mix. She listens. I think she wanted another change. I did. The next mm-hmm. day, she's like, Maury, you have another song. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm like, <laughs> wow. So I, I did these two songs. Um, apparently, that record got Grammy nominated for Best Zydeco. Nice. Who was it? it was, Who was that? It was uh, Lisa Haley, and the album okay. was called King Cake. And I only I nice. only mixed two songs on the record, and I think they're consecutive to one another in the record. Mm-hmm. But that was an amazing thing, you know. It was totally Congrats. unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was another band there. Um, there was a chief engineer, Rich Veltrup, a very very cool guy. He and I really uh, got along really great. Uh, he liked my bluntness. I like his bluntness. You know, it was very easy for us because we were just straightforward with each other. And nice. we would hang together because I was kind of, I became his mix assistant. But I actually did work on the mixing board and we were upstairs on the SSL and we were working on a band called Cog from Australia. It was a second record of them. And that record later on got gold, apparently. So I had a mixing credit on that record. Um, and it was a, Really, really interesting. My first time working on some of this amazing gear. Um, And there were other bands too. And during that time, you know, since I was not making money, I told Sylvia that I would like to 
approach bands and do some mastering for them. So I approached different bands and I, you know, started mastering for, because I wanted to do mastering anyway. Um, So I did some mastering for stuff in the studio, you know, some projects that, you know, some low-key projects that were there in some of the rooms I would master or some of the other projects I, you know, kind of helped or pre-master so they can hear. Um, But then I started approaching bands and back then it was MySpace, you know, and um, so a lot of these bands, I just approached and said, hey, you know, I would love to work with you and I didn't have that good English back then. It's probably why it was more like, hi, Maor, to meet you. I want to master your band. <laughs> right. No, just joking. Um, but that's how I started my a lot of my connections. Um, uh-huh. And I also had previous connections because I forgot to mention, I was doing some live sound in Israel and, and monitor engineer and sometimes backlining. And there was a promoter that would bring bands to Israel that I would be his tech Tech, technical director. Oh, okay. So I would work okay. with the bands. So I made connections with them, that with some of them that way. Like the band The Mission from England, The Mission UK, they're called in America. Um, okay. Which was like a goth rock band. I met when I was working with them live. And then later on, okay. I mastered the singer's uh, Wayne Hussey's solo album. So I always kind of built these connections by either working with them, either met them during a live situation or promo or or back then when I was approaching the bands and so I was working during the day on the projects that the studio had you know like working with Rich uh, mm-hmm. assisting him on the mix or, or helping Sylvia sometimes I would be doing tracking in case an engineer was not available but tracking was the, mo- mostly done by them I only did sometimes but I did a lot of mixing, assisting, and some mi- and some mixing. I did mastering okay. for the stuff I brought in, and I was also kind of an all-arounder assistant. You know, assistant. Um, there's a band called Econoline Crush. They're a Canadian band. Yeah, I remember. Gosh, uh, I remember. I remember the name of that band. I mean, I remember that band vaguely from a while back, right? They, yeah. They had a few albums, some with Bob Rock, some with. Uh, they had with Sylvia, they had with um, uh, John Travis, I think, or I don't remember who they, but, okay. but they had um, they had quite a few records, and I was with them all the time working um, as an assistant, and on the album, I actually got assistant, mix assistant credit, but I actually mixed their first single, because when they went on the road, before the album was out, they needed to release a single and it was kind of like the deadline 11th hour, whatever you want to call it. I don't know the name, but mm-hmm. Sylvia said, Hey, mom, go mix that thing. And I went to mix <laughs> and she was like, yeah, it's good. And they liked it. I didn't get mixed credit. I only got assist- oh, mix awesome. assistant credit, but that's politics that we're right. involved with something else. But I did actually play a small part on a keyboard that appeared on one of the songs. Okay, nice, so, nice. Um, and that's so, that's just the background in terms of right where, where you eventually um, get to with your profession and your career. So, yeah. So, like you said, you're there for about I don't know eight months. So, why don't you start to transition yep. into when do you? Um, I know it's around 2008, correct? That you decide to 
transition and go out on your own and open your own mastering studio? The transition was kind of an inevitable because after five months of me being there, um, I, had a, I had a relationship that I was kind of starting in Israel. You know that, that relationship when you tell a person, don't fall in love with me, I'm leaving? Okay. So, so I met this girl that was studying, she was doing her master's degree in uh, neurobiochemistry and wow. someone introduced us and we had a good time together, but I told her, don't fall in love with me. And, and when I left, it was heartache. And she decided that when she finishes her master's degree, she's going to join me. So after five months, she joined me and, and came Is to the studio. Is that your wife? Yes. Oh, wow. That's an awesome story. So, so she joined me and she helped around the studio. You know, um, Sylvia actually saw a big potential her, her being an engineer because she's really good with protocol. So she would sometimes tune vocals for some of the clients. Sylvia mm-hmm. taught her how to do it, so she did it. And she would label the consoles, and she was good in recalling. Um, but, you know, we were together there. And after a while, it's hard to have, you know, it it it, it, it gets crowded in a way, you know. And mm-hmm. so it was time for, for, for the whole thing to kind of be like, okay, um, us need to be us not living here, not working here, but expand. Also, you know, my mm-hmm. wife, she has a master's degree in neurobiochemistry. She wanted to do something also with her knowledge. And Yeah, she, what is and, she doing today? She worked for UCLA uh, as a oh, neurobiochemist, wow. as, a, as, a, as a lab technician. Uh, now she's not working because she's with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, she did that for seven years. Um, wow, nice. So, and, and I also noticed, you know, if I just want to do mastering, I have to only do mastering and, and be there hustling the work for mastering, you know. Right. And and I think right. and I think that became kind of clear. So both Sylvia and I kind of probably got to the point where okay, it's time to move on, and mm-hmm. um, and it happened. And then we 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 didn't have a car or anything, but one of the other engineer drove us to a airport. And then we took, from there, we rented a car and we mm-hmm. drove down to L.A., kind of like on a wing and a prayer, if you want to call it, you know. Wow, um, right. And, and I remember I had an Israeli cell phone and I'm trying to call people in L.A. to see if there's a place I can sleep. And we're going through areas where there's bad reception and it's it's like perfect timing. You say, hey, what's up? Hey, I'm, in, I'm on the way to L.A. Great. Hey, do you have a place I can sleep? And the call dropped. Right. Oh, no. Oh. I was like, oh. And I'm like, oh, I can't. Okay, let's try someone else. <laughs> it's a repetitive right. form. You know, it's like it gets dropped sometimes earlier, okay, than before you ask. But I remember I called a friend of mine. Well, there was a guy who I met, an Israeli guy. I met him at NAM. And I called him and I said, hey, you know, remember me? Um, I'm coming to LA and I guess I dropped the bomb on him and say, look, you know, we're stuck. 
we don't have a place to sleep. And, um, you know, we had a good communication, mm-hmm. you know, and it was his goodwill, you know, and, um, that's awesome. And he worked in a retail, a music retail store that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a very famous one here called West LA and West LA music. Anyway, um, he, he he told his wife, hey, you know, we got these weird, crazy strangers coming up to the house, so <laughs> be careful. Whatever. Uh, and we slept in his house for two nights. Mm-hmm. And his wife was generous enough uh, to take us house hunting or house searching, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and we found fine. a place. Yeah. And we found a place. And, uh, you know, and we're we're good friends, you know, and, you know, I, I, I always referred people to him, you know, he was great with me and I always like to, you know, give back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, yeah, later on he moved to the guitar center, he moved to other stuff, but at that time I was looking for work and, um, and I got a job at Sam Ash selling mm-hmm. pro audio gear. Okay. So, during the days I was working at Sam Ash, when I came to LA, after we had the house hunting, we had like two weeks of, you know, trying to find a job. And I was doing some mastering, you know, in the nights, but I needed something to pay good rent with um, mm-hmm. and pay the car. I bought the car from him. So I worked at Sam Ash in the pro audio department. I did that for four months during the day. I was selling there, and in the night I was hustling for mastering work. And after four months, I couldn't combine the two because it just took too much time. You know, you're all day in the store, and now you got to do yeah. a record, and yeah, it, it took too much time. So I left. So I left Samash. Um, I remember just before I left, I told the guys that I'll help them make the sale, but I won't take the commission. And um, they were good people, you know, and, and I, you know, it was a good time. I enjoyed it. It was just not my gig, you know, so mm-hmm. I did it what I could and I helped around, you know, but uh, I just wanted to do the mastering. And, and at that time, um, I had a few really interesting um, um, projects that blew my mind and probably gave me a lot of hope, maybe too much hope in the beginning. Um, what were some of those? Of what were some were, of those projects? Yeah, one of them was um, Rob Halford had a band called Fight in the nineties, mm-hmm. and producer Roy Z had remixed and rema- remixed the first record and second record, and that first record was already out, out remixed and someone mastered it, but the second record he just finished mixing and he and I got in touch with him through MySpace back when I was working for Sylvia and he gave me the opportunity he said you know I, I can see how passionate you are and you know I, I, I guess he felt that I'm really I really want this you know and he gave me the mm-hmm. opportunity and I did a track and he loved it and Rob awesome. approved it and then I did I think another track and that was approved and then I did the whole record uh, it was called Small Deadly Space, I think. Yeah, something like that. Um, And that opened up my uh, um, relationship 
with Roy working on records, and then I did another record of a, a friend of his, and then uh, Ingve Melstein did a record with Roy Z that Roy mixed, and okay. and then he said he he told he told Ingve about me, and and uh, he said you should try more, and then I did one song, and they did, and I did I think maybe another one, and then. They liked it, and then we did a whole record plus, and I say plus because there were more songs that didn't come out on that record. In the end, they moved to different albums. But um, okay, but yeah, then then I was doing Ingve, and I was still at Samash then. And I remember going to Samash during the day, and I was like thinking in my mind, dum dum, like melodies of Ingve. I was like, I can't, this is, can't be real. I'm I'm mastering an Ingve Malmsteen record. It's like <laughs> I can't believe right. it. You know, right. and you know, already with Halford as well. Um, right, absolutely. I mean, those are huge. Yeah, it, it it gave me a big boost, big bump to to what I was doing, but also maybe too much of a bump because these things can make you feel like you're on top of the world, and sometimes you have to put yourself in perspective and and. I thought I was ready for everything, but I, I wasn't. It was still a long road and, uh, to, you know, to get to where it should be. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was a, an amazing opening. And uh, I remember one day I get a call from David Ellison from Megadeth. Well, back then mm-hmm. he, was, he was out of Megadeth. He was working for PV and he had a few bands. One of them was called F5. Okay. And I met him at NAM, PV booth. And one day I was hitting him on MySpace. Hey, Dave, we met at, you know, Nam. And I get a call. Is this uh, Mauer Applebaum? Um, I'm like, <laughs> yes. This is David Ellison. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> David I was hiding behind speakers in the, in the Sam Ash um, showroom. Because I didn't want any client to come to me and start asking me questions. I'm on the phone with David Ellison. I'm not going to answer any client now. I don't care. I'm hiding. And I I was like hiding and ducking. So there's no chance of people seeing me. You know what I mean? Right, right. um, And he said to me that he has this band F5. It's a second record. And um, he would like to try me out. And... um, you know, try me out because I offered it, you know, not because he heard us. Sure. Before. I mean, we met, but I offered to, you know, to do it. And he says, yeah, mm-hmm. um, let's, tr- let's see. And they liked what, the, what I did. Uh, and then there's a whole story to that record, which funny thing is on the European version, there was a bonus track that was a cover of Rob Halford's fight band too. Okay. So it all linked up. Uh, that's that's just but, amazing, and it shows you. I think real quick, it shows you just, you know, what putting yourself out there can do. You know, I think a lot of people. I mean, I think we all have reservations and hesitations, and you know, you, no one wants to be rejected or said no to. But I think what you're saying is, if you don't put your, yourself out there and, and ask, a you're never going to know, and you can't even be told no. So I think that's another really relevant um, theme throughout this whole interview with, you know, the steps and where it has taken you. But, um, yeah, go on. You know, I can't say that I had the best tactics because 
Today, I know better English. I know better um, ways of approaching people in the mm-hmm. American mentality. I'm Israeli. We're very direct. So usually it's, you know, it ends up quick. We don't have to do too much um, exchange to get the ball rolling. Uh, just right. because the mentality is different. You know, it's like, right. um, and, but I didn't know that well enough. So some people kind of got, I don't know if the word is scared or, or intimidated by me because they didn't mm-hmm. like the approach of, hey, my name is Moore. I do this. I'd like to work with you. Right, it's right. like, whoa, too much for me. I didn't get that. You know, maybe if I was in New York, it would be different. I don't know. In LA, well, uh, people just, you know, plus sometimes your passion is so big that it overpowers things when you talk to people. And not everyone exchange without feeling um, a burden. If somebody comes to me and talks to me like that, I can understand that passion. I can um, right. hold, I can handle it. It doesn't mean I have superpowers. It just means I can do that because maybe I'm used to that or maybe I'm I'm made like that. But a lot of people, they're more reserved. No, I can see what you mean. I can, yeah, I think there's a psychology to it too. Um, but I think something, you know, and even doing a lot of the research I did on you, watching you in some videos on YouTube, I mean, there is a very authentic and genuine quality about you. I mean, I picked that up right away. Um whether people pick that up or not, you know, again, like you said, LA, I've only been out there a couple of times. It, it is a different world a little bit. I can say that I'm from New Jersey. Um, but you know, it might just be their perspective. It might not be that you're doing anything wrong, but like you said, people might be intimidated and maybe that has something to do with more of, you know, their fragile ego than it has to really do with you. We're not going to get into a whole psychology discussion, but I think, you know what I mean? I think you have a really good read on people. Um, and I think that makes you, you know, really good at what you do, um, not just for the technical aspect, but just like you said, having a good rapport and being able to develop relationships with, with the people you work with. Um, so I think there's a combination of that stuff. I don't think I can, I read people well. I think that a lot of times when it comes to the music, I connect with the music mm-hmm. and and maybe on that level, we think better. I think that a lot of times I don't read situations that are social and I don't read if the person doesn't want to talk to me or does. Um, I'm being authentic as is in terms of I have I have what I want to do as a state, not state like state independence or state country as right. more as a state, like a statement, you know, this is my state of it, you know state of mind, state of statement, state of where I am. And sure. in the past, I had less credits, less no, I was less known. So I was like another kid trying to get, you know, on the bandwagon. But as yeah, I get progressed on the map. And, got, sure. and, and got on the map, then if I approached, I was like taken more seriously. Um, and I also think that Back then, I I ran 200 miles per hour, where today I can do 150, and it will be more effective. And it's right. just, again, language and mentality. 
And one thing I have to, I got to learn in time is in LA, every day there's a plane landing here. Well, now no, because of the COVID, but you know, the virus. But it was a plane landing here, or a car coming here, or something, or a bus with 40, 80, 100, 200 people that want to do what I'm doing. Maybe not mastering per se, but maybe production, engineering, playing, touring. So there's so much of so much. How could people filter? And there's enough bull here. I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word, you know, the swear word, but there's enough of right. not real not stuff BS. here, okay? You could say, you could say, I mean, you can use BS. it, but okay. we'll say BS for short. You know, there's enough BS okay. going on, right? There's no, there's so much BS here. You know, think of LA as a bowl of raisin bran. There's only a few raisins, and everything else is flakes. So oh, no. Have to, that's a great analogy. I'm not saying I know out there, but that's just a really interesting analogy you used, right? So they have to filter so, out everybody. Right. Know? Right. And and what happens is everybody builds this mentality because they're used to everybody BSing them. So even if they're not really big, they think that the other guy who's BSing them is trying to be big. So as as in time you live here, you also acquire those filters. Maybe in the beginning mm-hmm. you come here, you're like you get like, oh, super excited. This guy's going to work with me. This guy... In time, you know, it's like an elusive thing, you know, mm-hmm. it draws you in. So those who can make it better are the ones who are here for a long time and they already filter stuff or got filtered and moved to the good bit. Right. Um, so let's, so let's if I had today's just knowledge time. then. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. So if I had today's knowledge then, I would probably be in a better spot. <laughs> well, I don't, I mean... What do you mean better spot? I don't know. I think you're in a great spot. Maybe you you would have got there a little quicker in your perspective. I'm not saying that at all from my perspective. No, no. That's the thing. I would be in a better spot where if I had the knowledge of today in every way, I would be in a better spot in terms of progression and understanding. It would take me less less years to communicate the way I, you know. But I'm happy with what I did. Don't get me wrong. I'm 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 super happy with the results that I got. Yeah. So how long? Let's do this just for time purposes. And again, believe me, I could talk to you forever. I booked the interview for two hours, and I think I think Mayor, you are the longest interview I've ever done. And I usually do an hour plus, and this is I mean it's excellent. I'm having a wonderful time, and I hope you are too. Um, My yeah, why don't you? No. No condolences. I said this is great. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah, I can be pretty concrete at times. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so anyway, so like you're saying, the road took a little longer than maybe you would have wanted it to. So, yeah, let's just uh, like ramp it up a little bit to let us know, you know, when do you start developing your own? I'm assuming you had your own studio, like when you left Sylvia. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about, I guess how you you get to where you're at now in terms of some of the projects you're going to be working on and some stuff like that. Okay. Well, sorry if it took me a long time to tell. I was no, trying to be no, very no, brief no, with no. what happened. No, uh, no sorry. Um, I, I like the stories. That's what my interview is about is really getting to, getting to know the person. I mean, that's what I like to do. Right. So, yeah. So actually, and you know what, while we're doing that too, there's so many technical questions I have, but like I said, that could be a whole other interview. I have notes and notes and notes. So let's do this. Share a little bit 
of basic information for the audience. Again, I'm sure we got our music gurus out there that are very familiar with, you know, what mastering and mixing is. But, you know, in general, how would you describe mastering? Um, and I loved, you used at one point, I read this somewhere, that you compared it to going into a museum and, and looking at a painting or a piece of art. And I think that really captures you and the fact that you work with so many genres. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about what is mastering, you know, why do you describe it like, you know, going into a museum and looking at a painting and just pull some of that stuff in. And like I said, I have no problem doing another interview down the road and we'll do more technical kind of stuff. Okay. To ramp up where you said before, um, I started buying gear and I moved different places, you know, where I, where I had the studio. Uh, this one is the one that I'm already in around eight years Plus, okay. so this one is probably the most <clears throat> steady place. Before that, I had a few different places where I started, worked a bit, then I moved to a different place, and and I progressed. And in time, I always reinvested the money I made in back into the studio because I felt that I want to give my clients better results all the time. And as I'm improving, I want the results to show for that. So mm-hmm. I kept reinvesting, and I keep putting you know the money in developing better uh, uh, you know products from from better results from the mastering process sure um, mastering is the last stage of the production and it's usually where the least amount of time is spent unless you know I don't know the recording and mix was so quick but they stuck on details in the mastering, whatever, but usually it's the final part. It's the buffer between the production and the consumer. Mm -hmm. It's the last step where you can make creative choices. And those creative choices are based on how it sounds. Either you want to brighten it up, you want to darken it up, you want to brighten and add bass, you want to just add more low end, you want to change the mid-range, you want to clean up certain frequencies, you -hmm. want to make it loud, you want to make it uh, slammed, you want to make it dynamic. Um, It's it's that fine area where small changes make big changes, which means you can add half a dB or one dB and it will make a difference because you'll Mm -hmm. hear it. Because it's on the overall. This is not a tracking or or recording and editing part where you're still working on the instrumentation or a mix where you blend the instruments and add effects right. and, and position them. This is only on the stereo, in case it's a stereo or surround, surround or mono or whatever, but it's only the overall. Think of it as um, in the mixing, you're dealing with discrete elements. So you're looking at the trees in a forest. In mastering, you're looking at the forest as a whole. If you see a few trees that are high, you see them high, you know, but you're looking at the whole picture, not at what type of tree each one is, where in mixing you are. Uh, When I talked about the analogy for the museum is the picture itself, you know, that is on the wall is um, presented in a certain way that way of presentation is surrounding the actual picture. Okay. The piece of art by itself is on a canvas. I can't control that canvas, but 
what's surrounding that canvas is a frame or not mm-hmm. a frame, but there is something. It could be mm-hmm. not a frame, which is a certain surrounding, or a type of frame, how thick it is, how dark or bright, how angled it is. And mm-hmm. also the wall that it's on, either it's just a wall, a blank wall, or just other pictures, let's say. And then there's lighting. And if the lighting is in a certain angle, it will emphasize certain shades and colors. If it's full bright, the whole picture looks bright. If it's a bit dim, right. it makes it darker. I'm controlling the light and the frame mm-hmm. and maybe the, the wall in a way. Right. So I can't control what's in it. I can only control the presentation. And that presentation can change your perspective on how you see it and feel to it. The music is there. I'm not changing any notes. But if it's brighter, it makes you feel different. If it's darker, Mm -hmm. it makes you feel different. If there's more low end or if it's aggressive, it makes you feel different to it. So your emotions towards the song can be um, more extended you can make it more engaging to the listener. You can make it engaging even to a certain territory. Let's say certain areas like to hear things more bright and attacking where other areas like it more dark and gloomy. Mm-hmm. You can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can cater to a certain audience. You have an audience in Europe and they like more punchy and attacky where American audience likes more low end. You can do that if a, a certain record has the need to go that way. So, a mastering engineer is somebody who's objective, who didn't hear it before, uh, and he brings a new perspective to it. And that's only if he only masters, because if he mixes and masters, then he's already biased in a way because he right. yep. mixed it. And again, that was more of technical uh-huh. stuff. I was going to ask you things, but like I said, I'd rather do more of a global perspective and we'll definitely down the road, I'll ask you more questions like, you know, what do you think of someone mixing and mastering at the same, you know, cause I'm a little familiar with this. I have a look, not like you, I have a little background in music. I have worked with a lot of different people. So I have some familiarity and I'm very interested in the production end of it and everything like that, that goes on behind the scenes versus just like you said, you know, recording and mixing types of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I think you described it really well. And like, that's a really good, analogy with with the paintings and stuff because yeah that's exactly what it is it's putting those kind of finishing touches on it depending on like you said how people want to view it um right so where are you also i have to say i have to mention that it's not only on the artistic side in terms of how we can make it um feel there's also a translation thing because you mm-hmm. want the mix to translate on different systems, you know, from, from small speakers to big speakers to headphones, earbuds, uh, broadcasting. Absolutely. So part of the mastering is also making sure you're optimizing the sound to make it translate better to the various playback platforms. So it has so do two, you, two sides. That was one of my questions. Your, do you actually take the product you master and go, for example, and listen to it on a boom box, go drive in your car, put, you know, put it into your computer. Do you listen to it on various mediums or is that the responsibility of the artist or the person that's listening to it to see if they like it? In the, in the beginning days, I would do that because I didn't have the studio I have, you know, currently. Gotcha. This one now is so good. 
that the translation is amazing. Wow. Um, but at the same time, I also have a few sets of speakers if I need to. And uh-huh. also I always tell my clients, you know, just check it out on different systems that you know because you know mm-hmm. what you want to hear. And exactly. They they do the run of, you know, headphones, earbuds, computer speaker, laptop, home hi-fi, car stereo. Is working on all that? Great. If they have an issue, I usually ask them to tell me what do they what did they hear and on what system. And then if we need, we tweak. Because there's so many systems out there. I can't have all the systems in the world, you know, but I, right. I try to make it fit most of what's possible. And then, again, if it's a band and there's five, four members and each one takes it to their own system, uh, you know, we can get up to 20 systems being checked. But right. But I do my work on on a really good uh, monitoring setup that helps me make, uh, uh, you know, make the most of it, you know, gives me good placement of where things are and how the frequencies are. And um, Mm -hmm. in the end of the day, music is art. If they like what I did and it touched them, I did what I, what I did and they like it. It works. You know, hopefully the audience feels the same. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we said, the discussion, Discography. I don't even. Have, I don't know if I'm saying it per, uh, appropriately. Just you know, all the different artists you've worked with. Um, this is an interesting question. I wonder if earlier in your career, I was thinking about this. Again, you work with so many different genres. I think that's amazing because it makes you very diverse and eclectic, and definitely keeps your business going when you're able to work with that capacity. Did anyone ever say to you in your, you know, kind of earlier stages, you know, you really should focus on one or two genres, you're spreading yourself too thin. Did you ever get any feedback like that? Very good question. I actually tell people that I think that when you do a lot, it's harder to progress. And the reason I say that is because when you do a lot, it's hard to get the right things to push you forward. But when you focus on something, and you do it really good, you start getting noticed there. Now you'll get more work there. And then you can always start trying other stuff. Mm-hmm. My career, um, even though today, you know, there's bands like, you know, from Yes to Fate No More to Meatloaf to Eric Gales to Starset. Right. To, but, but when I really kind of pushed myself into this industry, I went more with the metal records because I knew the metal right. sound. Mm-hmm. Um it's not that I didn't like other genres. I did like other genres. But n- nowadays, you know, I'll do hip-hop. I've done, like, Lupa Fiasco, and I've done different artists, you know, and reggae pop, like Common Kings. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that I, you know, um, moved into as well and added to my, um, you want to call it discography or palette of, of mm-hmm. work styles. But I did, in the beginning, mostly do heavy rock and metal. And I did some other projects, you know, of other bands, but they were not as known or, or anything like that. So it didn't really jump out to people. So people kind of pigeonholed me in a way which was, I felt like, oh, too bad because I really want to do these records. But at the same time, you know what? Maybe it was good that I was pigeonholed because, I got better at those records that I was doing 
And then later on, when I had the opportunity to do other stuff, I had more experience anyway. You know, and 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 so I think. But I I think you answered you you answered the questions where, yeah, like you said, you were focused. I mean, I and I saw that from your, you know your discography you have tons of metal and hard rock and stuff like that so right like you said that was kind of your earlier days where you were dabbling in maybe some of the other genres but not as extensive as you are now since you have all this experience under your belt right and nowadays i take on myself cinematic classic jazz you know blues Mm -hmm. gospel blues eric gales i've done like three records with Walter Trout, I did two records with. I've done soundtracks Amazing. for video games. Um, oh, wow. Um, okay. Know, like um, Fallout 76, I did. I mastered the main theme. And Elder Scroll Blades, I mastered the main theme. And I also did a, a solo record, for, uh, album record, whatever you want to call it, um, for Inon Sur, who is the composer of those video games. And oh, wow. um, I've done uh, piano records you know, and jazz, live jazz records and, and upright bass records, you know, upright bass jazz stuff. And I know it sounds weird to say upright bass, but it's a solo, um, it's a guy who has a solo band on a, you know, but he does most of his thing is an upright bass. Um, and I've done records for hip hop and pop and indie and electronic artists and, and stuff in Asia. And, and, you know, and I've done stuff like African music and, I've I've wow. really spanned, you know, from from from. I don't even know how many genres I've worked, you know, from country to right, Zydeco right. to big band, whatever you you know. It's like a lot of stuff, um, folk, Middle Eastern, uh, world music, New Age in a way. Um, but again, to get to those places, I probably had to start from one place and in mm-hmm. time, you know, start moving to the other stuff that I, I like anyway. So it wasn't like I was doing stuff I didn't like. Right, right. Wow. Well, I mean, we have talked about a tremendous amount of stuff. Why don't you do this? Share with us just a little bit, if you can. Are you working on any current projects that, you know, you're permitted to just say, hey, I'm working with this band or that band that you want to share with us? And then, of course, I want you to share your websites where people can find you if they want to contact you for your services. Um, and then we'll start to wrap things up. And like I said, you and I will be in touch, and we will definitely, in the near future, book another interview and, and focus on some technical stuff and really maybe delve into some of the artists you've had the opportunity to work with because I think that would be really cool too. Regarding current projects, I can't really talk about them, okay. uh, especially That's now with the COVID that. thing happening. Sure. But I can tell you um, there's some really interesting records, I think, people could check. I did a record um, for a band called Sabaton. It's called The Great War. And that record, they're kind of a heavy metal band, but they have a a theme for each song. It's about a certain uh, war and, Mm -hmm. or, or what happened in during that war from, for a different, for like different countries. So Mm -hmm. that's a a really good record to check. And it it actually became really successful. Uh, It went like number one on the German album charts. And it's a really good record. Um, Eric Gales, check out, you know, the latest record I did for him, uh, The Book Ends. That record also did really good on, I think it went number one on the Blues Billboard charts. And it, it's a really cool record. Eric is an amazing guitar player. Um, totally wow. amazing. Um, mm-hmm. um, 
I did a Yes Live 50-year anniversary record. It was my fifth Yes record. Um, I know. You've done, oh, gosh, we'll have, to, we'll have to delve into that sometime. You've done a lot of work with them, so congrats. Thank you. Thank you. And um, um, another good comeback record was the band, those who like old-school metal, um, band called Sacred Reich. I did a record called Awakening. And it's it's a, an amazing comeback for a band, you know, that wasn't, I don't know, like 20 years or something working and it just really kick ass, kicking record. Um, um, <laughs> the Fate No More album that I did, um, which came out five years ago, I still think it stands the test of time. It's called Soul Invictus. I really mm-hmm. dig it. Um, mm-hmm. I also remastered their first record, We Care A Lot, and it came out in a version called we Care A Lot, the Deluxe Band Edition. And it has the original We Care A Lot album with bonus tracks uh, and some remixes and, and good stuff in it. Uh, Meatloaf, Braver Than We Are, that was the last Meatloaf record. I did that. Um, um, I'm trying to think what's coming out. It's really cool. Uh, I did a KXM record, which is uh, Ray Luzier, George Lynch, and Doug Finnick. It's called Circus of Dolls. Okay. Re- really cool record. I really had a good time working on it. And um, there's a band. It's going to come out. Uh, it's a band from uh, Norway called Green Carnation. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think I think it's Norway. Um, this was another comeback album. They didn't do a record for a lot of years, but it was really cool. It's called it's called Leaves of Yesteryear, and there is a video of that song on YouTube. Uh, Green Carnation, Leaves of Yesteryear, really okay. nice I'll record. Have to check that out. I recommend okay. checking out. Um, and uh, da, 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 da. Um, wow, I'm I'm forgetting now. That's okay. Um, yeah, you shared you shared a lot. No, it's great. I mean, thank you for those recommendations and. Hopefully people listening uh, will check some of that stuff out. And please, as we know right now with the challenging times in the world, um, support our, our artists and the bands and let's, you know, keep these guys going. I mean, we need music, you know, we need entertainment. So I definitely am uh, a huge proponent of that. And yeah, just, you know, Hey, if you can buy CDs from the bands, they make, they can make more money than from streaming. So you know, right. if you have a CD player, of course. If you have a vinyl, right. you know, record player, then get that. And it's it's this is an important time to support artists because they were there out touring and now they're not. So I know whatever you can I do know. to support them will help. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's do this. Um, share with you know, share with everyone where people can find you. Your Facebook, Instagram. Um, of course, your website where people can access your services. And then we'll wrap things up for tonight, and you and I will definitely be in touch, and we'll uh, talk about doing something else in the future. Awesome. Uh, my website is maorapplebaum.com or M-A-O-R-A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M.com or radiantmastering.com, R-A-D-I-A-N-T, M-A-S-T-E-R-I-N-G dot com. Uh, Facebook, I got five of them. Uh, just type more Applebaum or more Applebaum Mastering. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, Instagram. 
right now is more Applebaum Mastering. I can, uh, you can email me at m-a-p-p-e-l-b-a-u-m at gmail.com um, and get in touch with me. I'll be happy yeah. to talk with you guys about um, your uh, project, your music. Absolutely. Absolutely, Miller. Well, it was amazing having you on. I appreciate you sharing the stories and your life journey and how you got to where you are. I want to wish you nothing but continued success. Um, so thanks again for coming on. It was it was really an exemptual uh, ex, what's the what's the word I'm trying to use? I'll just say extraordinary. That's what <laughs> an extraordinary interview with you. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I'm really happy to be doing this interview with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And just so you know, too, um, I will. It's the same link. If um, for any reason someone couldn't tune into it. I'd say give it about 10 or 15 minutes and the podcast will be available. So anyone that you know, if they want to hear it, can stream it on iTunes, on this website, um, download it for free. So it'll be available, which is great. So we can get it out there for other people to listen to your, your life story. Well, that's great. And uh, okay. I want to wish everybody all the best and stay strong and positive. And even if there's hard times, find a way to utilize that to something creative and uh, make a great song or help someone or do the best mm-hmm. you can to ease it on everybody. Absolutely. I think that's well said and perfectly perfect way to, to tie in the show. So yeah, thank you so much, Mayor. I really appreciate it. You were excellent and uh, let's definitely keep in touch. Will do. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. Mayor Applebaum, it was a tremendous interview with him. We did uh, two hours, and um, please check out his site. He is a phenomenal mastering engineer, so anyone out there who needs his services, he's just, as you could see, all-around great person to work with and really knows his stuff. He's going to make an amazing project for anyone who wants to work with him. So, again, we thank him for coming on tonight. Um, if anyone would like to become a fan of my show, you can follow me at uh, Carrie Edelman on Instagram. I have two pages, similar to my, my R, not as many as him, two Carrie Edelman uh, pages on Facebook, the Carrie Edelman Show on Facebook, and you can follow me um, at Carrie Edelman on Twitter. So thank you so much for tuning in. As I said, a podcast will be available. I will post that shortly so anyone can check out his interview who is not able to either listen to the entire interview or not listen at all today. Um, So again, thank you for the support in these times, as we said, it is really paramount that you support the artists out there. And that's what the show is about. I bring on writers, musicians, filmmakers. So let's get the word out. Let's support them. Let's keep them doing what they need to do because really when it comes down to it, it's all those people that bring us so much joy in our lives, being able to, you know, read a new book or watch a movie or listen to some great new music. Okay, so thanks again, everyone, for tuning in, and have a great night. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.